Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thank you for downloading this podcast of New Books and Sports. You can now listen to episodes of New Books and Sports on the Stitcher app for iPhone and Android. Go to our website, newbooksandsports.com, click on the Stitcher link at the top of the page, and download the free app for your mobile device. Stitcher allows you to listen to podcasts and talk radio over your phone, and you can stitch together playlists of your favorite programs whether on current events, culture, or sports. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week my guest is award-winning author and journalist Roy McGregor, We are discussing his book, Wayne Gretzky's Ghost and Other Tales from a Lifetime in Hockey, published by Random House Canada in 2011. In the last three decades, there's been a flowering of writing about hockey in Canada. Novelists, academics, even poets have plumbed the depths of the sport's hold on Canadians and its place in the nation's culture. An important contributor to this body of writing has been Roy McGregor. In newspaper columns and magazine articles, novels for adults and young readers, and acclaimed nonfiction books, including one co-authored with Hall of Fame player Ken Dryden, Roy has described the game with careful insight and expressive touch, even earning one reviewer's tribute that he was the closest thing there is to a poet laureate of Canadian hockey. But Roy brings more than a poet's style and a reporter's eye. He is also a lifelong player and was a youth coach for a dozen years. And although he was a player of only middling ability, and he did not coach his son or daughter to the elite ranks, Roy's experience in the game gives him a more nuanced and more appreciative view of the game. In our interview, we talk about important figures in hockey past and present, the place of hockey as a game in Canadian culture, and how that game has changed in recent years. We begin the interview by talking about the title of the book. I asked Roy to explain the story behind his choice of Wayne Gretzky's ghost. Well, it's a catchy phrase. (laughs) <laughs> obviously, and uh, I was a little concerned about it, so I ran it past Wayne. I said, look, uh, this is the, the, the book that I'm putting together, and I'd like to tell the story about when you and I were working together, and this is probably the title that the publisher will choose. Are you okay with that? And he said, oh, yeah, sure, that's fine. So it really grows out of the fact that after he retired in 1999, he didn't really know what he wanted to do, and he got a good offer from uh, a national newspaper here in Canada called the national post to write a weekly column and uh, he was interested in it i don't know what they paid him there were lots of rumors around of it being a tremendous amount i just don't know myself but they called me and i was working as a staff writer on the uh, on the post at the time i was a columnist and they called me and they said that they had this shocking surprising news they were going to announce and it was that Wayne Gretzky was going to be a sports columnist, and after I swallowed a couple of times and kind of had a puzzled look on my face, I guess, they said uh, there's one hitch, though, that uh, he and his agent, Mike Barnett at the time, uh, are asking if you would be the one who would ghost it. And in uh, journalism or literary terms, ghosting is simply substituting for someone. You, you, You do the actual writing for someone. It's their thoughts, their ideas, but you do the writing because that's not what they do. He's a hockey player, obviously, a brilliant hockey player. And uh, so they said, you'd have to drop one of your columns. So I dropped one of my columns and uh, took that on. And I, I regretted it almost immediately because it was so much work. I'd have to uh, talk to him at length over the phone. 
a couple of times in person. Then I'd have to write up the column. Then I'd have to fax it to him and to Mike Barnett. This is back in a time when fax machines were still being used. They would uh, look at it and have their comments and marks and, and things like that, and I would uh, then redo it again and send it in. It would finally appear. It was taking up far more time than just doing one call of, them of my own, but that only lasted two weeks. After that, uh, after he realized that uh, I could get his voice and, and get his thoughts down, we'd have a little chat by phone, and I'd uh, write up the column, and within a few weeks, he wouldn't even ask to see it again before it appeared in print. So it became a, a good working relationship. He, he had confidence in, in me, and I got it done. But he only did it for a year. Then he decided he would move on and do other things. As we know, he became a partner in the Phoenix Coyotes and then the coach. And uh, he, he stopped writing. But for one year, he was uh, doing a sports column, and I was actually the guy writing it. And he never, ever denied or, or pretended otherwise. He'd always introduce me as his ghostwriter and that. So... I didn't think there was any problem in, in lighting up this little so-called secret, and he didn't see any problem with it either. So you write in the in the essay that describes that story, you, you came to be quite impressed with his his insights into the game as you were putting them onto paper, correct? He gets a lot of criticism for not being opinionated, for not being strong on, on whatever issues come along. He was always uh, accused of taking the NHL line. Uh, but th- that's because he's very diplomatic. In fact, he does have great insights, and, and why shouldn't he? he? He, whoever played the game with more imagination, whoever uh, had more effect uh, on changing the way the game is played, maybe Bobby Orr did. I don't know for sure, but he had a tremendous impact, and so of course he should have good thoughts on it. And some of the thoughts that I really, really liked, for example, was he said that uh, in his opinion, the most ridiculous thing that a parent can do to a child that that is uh, showing some signs of being a protege, a good hockey player, is to have that child play hockey all the time. You know, burn them out. He was a believer that uh, once the season was over, the season was over, and you didn't play that sport anymore. You switched to other things. He liked lacrosse. He was a terrific baseball player. His son, by the way, is also a fabulous ball player and is now on his way to a professional career. And uh, he thought you, the things you picked up from other sports were always adaptive and good for hockey, but even better than that was just to refresh the brain and not not make your life just one solid hockey practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So being the ghostwriter for Wayne Gretzky, uh, one would think this would be a pl- pretty plum job for a uh, for a hockey writer, but, but you didn't set out to be a hockey writer at the beginning of your career as a journalist. No, I spent uh, 14 years on Parliament Hill covering the Canadian government. I uh, have done uh, all sorts of other things than that. And uh, one day uh, I had uh, complained about uh, they were going to start charging us parking, exorbitant parking fees downtown Ottawa. I was going down every day to cover the the hill, so I complained to the editor, and the editor of the Ottawa Citizen at the time asked me out to lunch, and he opened the lunch by saying he had a solution to my parking problem. (laughs) <laughs> I took that to mean that he was going to start paying for my parking. And I said, oh, yeah, what's that? And he said, well, from now on, you're covering the Ottawa Senators. They were just starting up as a franchise in Ottawa, and uh, they wanted me to switch over to hockey, which I did so happily. I had often dabbled in hockey and even written a novel about a hockey player and played hockey all my life and knew lots of hockey players. So it, it wasn't uh, an uncomfortable thing for me to do. It just was something I hadn't thought of. Mm-hmm. But you say in the book that you jumped at it when you when you had that offer. Oh, it's such an exciting thing to do. It was the big story in town. I was uh, getting very tired of covering politics at the time and looking for a new challenge. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, the plum job in town. And here it is handed on a plate. So, yeah, I leapt at it and uh, never regretted it. I had so much fun uh, covering that hapless first year of the Ottawa Senators. <laughs> it was the funnest, most fun I ever had as a journalist, I think. Huh. So you mentioned that you you played hockey yourself. So uh, how would you describe the arc of your hockey career? Oh, kind of like uh, one of those firecrackers that uh, only the first charge goes off and then it fizzles. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was very good at eight, not so good at 10, becoming fairly average by 15, 16, and 20. I still play. I'm in my 60s now. I still play, but, yeah, I I peaked very early. So there's an episode from your playing days that that features in uh, a, a scene in your novel, 1983 novel, the last season, which which is excerpted in in the book. So can you tell us about that that uh, the real life 
episode that you then describe in the novel or, or uh, turn into a scene in the novel? Well, I, I, the novel is called The Last Season, and the character in it is a, is a fellow called Felix Baderinsky. That's a, a name that I took from someone that I'd grown up with, the Baderinsky. <laughs> and then Felix was a fellow that worked with my father in the bush. Uh, lots of Poles around that part of Ontario, Polish people. And so uh, I had re- started to write the novel, sat on Parliament Hill involving politics, and it just wasn't working out. And there's that old uh, bromide, you should write what you know. And I thought, well, this isn't really working out because I don't know politics as well as I thought I did. But I have played a lot of hockey. So I said, well, I'll switch my character into a hockey player and I'll start to uh, see if that works out. And so because of my age, I'm exactly the same age as Bobby Orr. I, I grew up in a town 50 miles away from Perry Sound. And our towns were great rivals in, in sports. So when I played for the Huntsville All-Star teams as a, as a child he was playing for the Perry Sound All-Star teams and we played against each other from oh say age 8 to 14 huh. and so I had a sense of what it was like to be on the ice with Bobby Orr even though it was the little Bobby Orr rather than the than the Bobby Orr that everyone knows and thinks of nonetheless he had amazing talents and an amazing ability so I I, I, I was able to describe what it was like so I in the novel I put us both in junior and I was uh, the main character who was playing for the Sudbury team, playing against the Oshawa Generals, Orr's team, and they met in, in the novel, they meet in the playoffs. So I described this whole scene about uh, what it's like to be on the ice with Bobby Orr. And I've had a lot of hockey players tell uh, me that, that, uh, that those descriptions are so dead on, they, they can't believe it. They want to know where I got them and that. Well, I got them from real life. <laughs> So that's something interesting I, I thought of is that, uh, um, you know, so as you say, you were you were an average player by the time you were in your teens. And yet in, in reading your essays, it's clear you played the game and, and that experience colors, colors your writing, even your uh, your journalism about about hockey. And I was wondering, why do you think that that sports writers today and I'm thinking mostly of what I read here in the States that they don't allow themselves to, um, they don't allow their experiences as players to color their writing. You know, even to recognize, no, I was, I was nowhere near the ability of professional athletes. But, but I know what it feels like to to have a ball on the bat, and I know what it feels mm-hmm. like to to be on the ice and to make a great move and to and to go around the defenseman on a one on one. Why don't Why don't sports writers allow themselves to do that? My experience has been, and I hope I've not been unfair here, is that most sports writers have not played oh, so really? sports okay. they cover at, at, at good levels. And so they really don't have a comprehension of it. And certainly I notice it all the time in, in covering hockey, that uh, there's this uh, drive in, in hockey coverage to baseballize the game, and that's to reduce it to statistics that mm-hmm. are meaningful and will tell you things. Now, one of the uh, true truths of hockey in particular is that, and I'll try to say this politely, stuff happens. In hockey, they don't say stuff. They use another word that begins with S, but let's say stuff happens. And so there's a randomness and an unpredictability to the game and a creativity that kind of belies all the statistical analysis. And so you end up with uh, one of the things that has always intrigued me is that the people who do all almost exclusively all the analysis of hockey on television are either former goaltenders or former goons. And and basically, they're people that never played the game, as 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 they're being described. So that they're always showing on the telestrator somebody whose job is to do this, and somebody who's out of position here, and this is the set play, and that. Well, I'm sorry, it doesn't happen that way. It actually happens so quickly that it almost defies thought and defies analysis. And that, and that's why I think it's very unfair in the way some people cover cover games in which they blame some somebody for something that's impossible for example when you're on the ice you cannot see the the patterns that you see from a press box you're you're hovering over it like a helicopter up in the press box and you're seeing all these channels and everything well all you see when you're on the ice generally speaking unless you have that kresky type vision are legs and bodies getting in the way and it's moving so fast it's it's a blur the puck comes back to someone on defense uh, and, and in the press box, it skips over that person's stick, and they, you know, they're basically uh, calling the guy a bum up in the press box. Or what's wrong with him? Well, I'm, I'm very sorry, but pucks hit the lice chips and they skip, and it's very, very difficult. 
they should be absolutely in awe of the talent that they're seeing on the ice, not disparaging it. Yeah, yeah. And to use another S word, there's uh, hockey is is simple. You you talk about that in in uh, there's an essay where you you write uh, critically of the the empty language that's used by analysts and that's used in uh, in post game interviews and 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 you say it's it's empty because at heart hockey is really a simple game. Oh yes. Well, I used to do this little trick when I was covering hockey full time. And uh, you'd be sitting there talking to some, you know, young 21-year-old or whatever, and and they they learn all these tricks because they have so many cameras and microphones pushed in the direction, so they talk in cliches, but they always say, and you hear it all the time, you know, we'll be okay as long as we stick to our system. So I would always say to them, well, what is your system? <laughs> and they would have, wouldn't have a clue what I was asking because it's just a cliche. The systems are so simple. You send one person into four check or you send two people into four check or in case of Tampa Bay, you send nobody into four check. <laughs> and, and that's basically what it boils down to. There's a few patterns uh, that work sometimes in terms of getting out of your own end. But the, the, the system thing is so overblown. And proof of that is that every time you, uh, you see someone traded, and, and almost exclusively, that person has an excellent first game. Mike Camilleri, for example, gets traded to the uh, Calgary Flames the other day, and he scores in his first game out. Well, how did he learn that system? And it's simple. There is no system. He just <laughs> simply went out there and played because he has the instincts of a hockey player, and he knows the basics of it. Mm-hmm. So one thing I, I particularly enjoyed about your writing, and I think that comes from your experience as a, as a player, is, is not simply uh, your recognition it's a simple game. It's a hard game. It requires requires skill, but also your your writing throughout had an enthusiasm. You 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 clearly write with a sense of of joy of being on the ice. Yeah, I love the game. I love, uh, and any hockey player will tell you this at any level. Uh, possibly one of the most pleasurable feelings in the world is is that moment when you step on a fresh sheet of ice mm-hmm. yes yeah and it's almost as if your skates are writing and 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 you as you turn that first corner you you're you're leaving your signature people can see exactly where you went and if you flick your uh, ankles in a certain way you can you can get create a sizzling sound you can toss ice in that They're, these are very wonderful feelings and one of the oddities of hockey of course is that it is such a difficult game to play because first of all you have to perfect something which is skating before you can play the game and so you actually have to learn two things one is to how to skate which is its own and immense pleasure and then the other is is to how to play the game but it's in the skating that i think the pleasure comes and and when you see someone who skates the way a paul coffee skates or a Sidney crosby skates and you and you just wonder what it must feel like to be out there with with uh, hardly even aware that your legs are moving and that you're flying down the ice yeah 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 no you wrote that that line in, in the book of the this wonderful feeling of of stepping stepping through the doorway of the boards onto uh, newly cleaned ice, and I thought of it. I smiled at that, and I thought, "Yeah, there's there's really no experience. I, I can't think of an experience like that when you step onto the ice when it's, and the zamboni has just gone on, and it's it's nice and fresh. And the zamboni guys yelling at you to come on too early. <laughs> you gotta wait. You gotta wait. I, I remember that people, as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Don't go on the, the ice yet. You want to know the real difference between the NHL being in the NHL, and not being in the NHL? NHL guys go on the ice when the zamboni. <laughs> And no one says a word. All right. Well, I want to stick with hockey as a game before we move on to uh, talking about the professional sport, the NHL. And a term that comes up repeatedly in your book, in in the various essays, is shinny. Mm -hmm. So can you explain what what shinny is? Because this is a a purely Canadian term. When I played hockey in Minnesota, we called it pickup uh, rather than shinny. So can you explain what shinny is and its place in Canadian culture? I think that uh, shinny is the jazz of hockey. It's it's uh, everyone has kind of you like to think sort of mastered their instrument in this case mm-hmm. skates and hockey stick, and then you just sit there and kind of riff off of each other in shinny because you you uh, can go any direction and you can do anything in it. There's no coach yelling at you. There's no parent uh, watching. Uh, there's no uh, all kinds of uh, crazy rules that pertain that don't pertain in a real hockey game, and among those would be uh, uh, no lifting, like no raising of the puck, um, different uh, goal sizes because you set boots out or whatever it is to to mark them. 
uh, don't leave yellow snow too close to the <laughs> to the ice surface, and uh, and if you you fire the puck out of the uh, so-called rink area, you got to go get it, even if it means clomping through the snow that comes up to your to your knees and that. So it's it's really a, a kind of childish, innocent game in that. Uh, that's when the fun things happen. That's when you try the crazy things that you see people trying now in the National Hockey League when they do shootouts. Shootouts really have brought an element of shinny into the professional game because you get the incredibly insane things tried that you would never, ever, ever think of trying in a game, and that's what people do in shinny and, or pickup, and it's certainly called pickup here in, in Canada as well. But shinny's kind of a sweeter word, and that's why I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I compare it to jazz. So, if there's a, a theme that's noticeable throughout the throughout the essays, and the essays come from from four decades of writing about hockey, but it, it, one theme that I recognized is that you appear to express regret over the passing of uh, I don't know if I call it traditional hockey, but the hockey that's that's rooted in shinny and pickup and and outdoor rinks. And, and you'd mentioned earlier uh, Gretzky talking about year-round hockey, and, and you have a quote in the book from Gretzky where he talks about that, that everything he learned came from his backyard rink or his basement, not from camps and not from, from practices. So why is it that you think that, that hockey is a game is, uh, is if it is, is, is coming to a decline? I think that uh, hockey's become far too structured. I think that uh, because of the rewards at the end of it, you know, in in the country that I live in, Canada, most parents would rather have their child play a single game in the National Hockey League than become a neurosurgeon for life. It's got that kind of cachet in this country, and it's, it's really out of whack with what it should be. So you, you have everybody in highly structured hockey. You have uh, hockey teams of children in Toronto, for example, where the price of paying for that, playing for that team is equal to the price of sending your child off to an expensive university or college. They have their own buses. They dress up in micro suits and ties to go to their games. Uh-huh. The coaches act like uh, National Hockey League coaches on the, on the bench. They have track suits when they're at leisure time with their names on them. Extraordinary expenses. The hockey used to be a, a, a game that anyone could play, and it really was, as Don Cherry used to say, they used to be able to put together blue-collar teams. Well, you certainly couldn't do it anymore because uh, hockey became the middle-class game, and even in, in recent years it's becoming even worse than that. It's had, had, heading up even higher in terms of costs. And so that you have had uh, hockey players often, when they hold those outdoor games, you'll hear the interviews with the various young NHLers, and many of them will never have played on yeah, an outdoor yeah. rink before. That, to me, is astonishing. So something magical has been lost, and I would say that that magic lies in, in the creativity and, and the imagination. And uh, Jean Piget, the famous uh, Swiss uh, psychologist who wrote about uh, childhood many, many decades ago in all kinds of learned books, said, you have to leave a child alone mm-hmm. uh, playing so that a child can learn through his or her own mistakes. And that's how Wayne Gretzky learned how to play his game because he would go behind the net and 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 he he actually would explain it this way that people talked about his office quote an office back of the net where he would set up and make his plays from he learned that in lacrosse he didn't learn it at all in hockey he noticed in lacrosse that some of the better players were using that slightly taller uh, slightly different shaped net to, to duck in behind and then look for a pass that they could make out in front. And so he he learned to do that, and he adopted it to, to hockey in his backyard and in his basement. And just playing shinny with his friends, then started using it in the structured game, and it has changed, changed the way the game is played. If he'd never had those opportunities to try that and make those mistakes and learn from the, from the mistakes, there would be no office. When you were saying that that the drive comes from parents who want their, their kids to play in the NHL. I have a, I have a friend who, who coaches hockey in, in Prague, in the Czech Republic, and, and he's noticed the same thing with, with the kids he coaches. He says that uh, a lot of these kids from, from affluent families, it looks as if they don't even want to be on the ice, but, but their parents have them here. And I've, I've wondered what, uh, you know, what's going to be the result of that 10 years down the road where you have uh, kids who've, 
been pushed into camps and practices and year-round leagues and traveling teams, and yet the desire was not with the kids. You don't see kids uh, like Gretzky uh, or you know the other great players, Lemieux, who who are playing in their basement or playing in their backyard or uh, you know playing at all hours of the night. Instead, hockey is reduced to the scheduled time. Uh, and, and only the times that their parents pay for and drive them to. So what is going to be the result for, for hockey, do you think? I think we already see it to an extent. Uh, when the 1972 Summit Series was played in Canada, Canada versus the Soviet Union, the Canadian media uh, went on and went on for decades, actually, calling the Russians or the Soviets robots in the way that they played the game. Mm-hmm. And the robots have largely become us now. Uh, we now uh, have so many players who play exactly the same that they're they're just repla- replaceable cogs in the machine, and and it's tremendous irony to me anyway is that the flash and the color seems to come from Russians, like them or not, and there's a lot not to like as well as a lot to like in terms of the overall Russian players, but uh, a lot of the flash and dash is coming from the the old robots. I'm not too sure where that's coming from. They seem to have more freedom in, in which to express themselves. Canadians are producing so many like players that, uh, you know, there's 775 players in the National Hockey League right now. I would say that there's 10,000 people in the world who could take most of those jobs, especially the, the, the third and fourth and the utterly meaningless fourth line, so that so that you have uh, created that situation. I'm not so sure there's anything that could be done about that because some people have creativity and some people don't. I would only argue, and I could be wrong on this, that the truly creative have to do a lot of playing by themselves in unstructured organization. Un- no, I can't say unstructured organization, unstructured <laughs> situations. <laughs> so one more question about how the, the game is learned and played by kids. Uh, you've written in the past, uh, one of your books is about the relationships between fathers and sons in hockey. But in this book, you include an essay on hockey moms. So yeah. why do hockey moms deserve praise? Well, I, that's that's my apology for having written the book about fathers and sons. <laughs> <laughs> the fathers and sons book was very, very interesting in the way it came up, Bruce. Because, and, and I've often thought that this was the only way it came up. It was it came from a woman, the suggestion, who had grown up in a Jewish household in New York City and was very bookish and knew nothing whatsoever about hockey. She had moved to uh, Toronto with her husband, who was a Canadian, and she was working in the book business. And she asked me, and she sent me a letter saying. I've been watching Hockey Night in Canada with my husband. I have to learn how to like it. And I'm, I cannot believe the number of times I hear a hockey player make reference to his father or say, Hi, Dad. And I sometimes say, Hi, Dad, and Hi, Mom, too. But there's this thing about fathers and sons. And I sent her back a note saying, uh, you know, that's the most ridiculous idea I've ever heard of. No one would ever be interested in that. <laughs> it's just a fact of life that people do have fathers. I was not snotty or anything about it, but I wasn't intrigued. And and I happened to be sitting at, uh, I was in Toronto for some reason, and I was up and uh, going to cover the game at Maple Leaf Gardens, and I looked up into the stands, and I saw Paul Henderson sitting there. Now, Henderson is such a Canadian hero, and he's the person who scored the winning goal in the 1972 series. He's iconic. And I walked up to him, and I said, I'd known him a bit, and I talked to him, and I said, I, I, there's this thing gnawing at the back of my head. I said, do you think there's a book? in the relationship between fathers and sons in hockey. I know that a lot of people really believe in their father, you know, Gretzky and Walter Gretzky and all that stuff. And that. But, and Paul said, well, you know, I'll tell you something. I think it's a good idea, and I'll tell you why I think it's a good idea. I've never told anybody this before, but he said, when that puck went in the net in Moscow in 1972, and you see that picture of me... Uh, Cornoye leaping into my arms and Esposito racing at me and that, you know, they've done stamps of it, they've done posters of it and everything. He said, you know that my initial emotion was one of utter sadness when that happened? Mm. And I, I said, well, what? He said, I, I, I can't help it. He said, the only thing that I could think about was that my dad had died and how much I regretted that he couldn't share this. And I knew at that moment that, wow, there is something magical about Father's Son. The book went on to be a tremendous success most successful I ever had, I guess. And then we get to mothers and, and, and hockey players, and I thought, boy, they don't get enough credit. And they're the ones that 
make the lunches, get the breakfast, get them up, drive them to the rink, wait for them at practice and that. So I started doing some poking around about various mothers. And some of the stories are wonderful, you know. Uh, Mario Lemieux's mom, for example. Mario and his brother, Alain, who also played professional hockey. When it got too cold uh, near Montreal, where they uh, used to live, she would actually allow them to pack snow, and she would help them pack the snow into one of the rooms of the house, keep one of the rooms of the house cold, pack snow in, carry it in by shovel, pack it, and let them play inside. Unbelievable. Mike Madonna's mother... Uh, talk about a, a good story, good American story. He couldn't find people to play with him enough, so he would go down in the basement. His mother would come down there, and she would put on these old goalie pads. And uh, instead of a blocker, as goaltenders use in real games, she would use the lid of a garbage can. And Mike Madano, as a little kid, would fire pucks at his mom. And so there were these wonderful stories about moms making this incredible sacrifice and how much they were appreciated by their, their boys who ended up playing hockey. I think the next thing I need to do is do fathers or mothers and daughters in hockey because they, they have similar stories, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So let's turn to some of your essays about the about the NHL. Uh, your earliest pieces in the book date from the mid to late 1970s when you were writing uh, mostly profile articles for magazines. Yes. And the one article I want to ask you about is the piece you did on Marcel Dion, the, the Hall of Fame center who played most of his career for the LA Kings. And something that was striking in that article, which, which was published in 1980, is your sense that hockey just didn't fit in California. So yeah. so can you talk about what you observed back in the in the late 70s and what what do you think about the NHL's attempt to plant hockey in cities in the southern United States? I, I did go down there in, in 1979, 1980 and spent some time with Marcel. And, uh, you know, I would go to the rink and uh, there'd be all these uh, either minor or Canadian celebrities hanging around Gordon Lightfoot, for example, and and the owner of the team then, Jerry Buss, he had been a fairly recent owner. He was there, and it was kind of like a party atmosphere. And the team, uh, which had a wonderful line led by Marcel Dion, uh, it uh, it wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't going to win any championships. And there was no sense, really, of any urgency there, no sense of what I would call the, the intense pressure of fandom mm-hmm. that you might feel in a Montreal atmosphere, for example. And Marcel, who had, uh, had a really had a career of, of, I don't want to say fleeing the spotlight, but he really did uh, kind of shy away from the intense pressure that his, uh, his uh, peer, Guy Lafleur, was under. He he went to Detroit and then he went off to L.A. He never won a Stanley Cup and Guy Lafleur wins his five, uh, and 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 becomes a, a superstar here. And and the, Marcel would say, well, he had a good career, and I would say, well, he had an unfulfilled career because there should have been more pressure. So where does the pressure come from? Is it inside Marcel Dion or is it in California? I would I would argue equally in California as as it might be inside him. So you had uh, this in the situation in 1980. 1988 rolls around, and you have a different situation in which Wayne Gretzky is essentially sold off like a hunk of meat to uh, to L.A. and and uh, Bruce McNall, and it's a great crisis in Canada. Canadians didn't take this very well. You know, for centuries we'd uh, harped about our our raw resources going down to other overseas to when we were a colony or to the United States when we became a country, whether it was iron ore or forestry or whatever. And now the greatest resource of all in Canada, Wayne Gretzky's being sold off the United States. And that's what caused expansion in the South, the so-called Southern footprint that Gary Bettman talked about so much. And it really was because Gretzky was the only player ever who transcended the game. He was the only player who could go on the Letterman shows or or then late-night shows or guests on all of our children or whatever that show was in the afternoon, and people knew who he was. Everything was golden. So there, there was this spike in the history of hockey. I do another essay in that book in which I say Wayne Gretzky is the worst thing that ever happened to hockey. It's done tongue-in-cheek. What I'm trying to argue is that had, no, had there never been a Wayne Gretzky board in 1961, there never would have been this mania to expand the, into all the southern areas which uh, looked like good markets and were superb television markets but lacked one thing and that was the people who cared 
and knew about the game of hockey. So the result now you see in places like Phoenix and certainly in places like Florida, we've already seen what happened in Atlanta. The National Hockey League went back there for a second time and it failed for a second time. It's probably going to say, fail in, in other spots. But for uh, somewhat odd reasons, and I can't really put a finger on it, it's not done too badly in, in California. You have three teams in California. Mm-hmm. In 2007, you have the Anaheim Ducks winning the Stanley Cup, and uh, they, they seem to, to do all right. They also have a pretty good minor hockey program there. And so that I, I can't categorically say that the selling footprint was a mistake, but uh, it was more a mistake than it was success, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So another uh, older profile that you include in the book is an article on on Bobby Clark, who played center for the successful and notorious Philadelphia Flyer teams of the 1970s. And your your piece on Clark uh, from the 70s was was somewhat ambivalent. But uh, can you introduce Clark and and give us your view today on his legacy, on the legacy of Bobby Clark, the player for hockey? Yeah, I had a lot of trouble with uh, Bobby Clark because uh, he represented a game that I not only didn't like, but I didn't recognize. It was basically mayhem on ice. He was the face of the Philadelphia Flyers. Philadelphia Flyers uh, basically came up with a, a gimmick in hockey, which worked, and that was simply to scare the bejesus out of your opponents, to beat them to submission, and uh, not really worry too much about playing the actual game of hockey. After they were all, everybody else was all unconscious, maybe you could cuff the puck in the net and you'd win one nothing. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but not that much. It was really an awful situation. It was brawls endlessly. I was in the rink in uh, January of 1976 when the Bri- Clark and the Broad Street bullies uh, went after the so- Soviet, visiting Soviet team, Red Army team, to the point where the, the, the Russians left the ice and weren't going to ever come back. They were finally forced to come back, but they came back and didn't even try. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the game, to me, was in a, in a disgraceful mode. And Bobby, of course, was the captain. Now, uh, kind of unfortunately, I thought, was that he himself did have a tremendous amount of skill. He was not that big a person. He suffered from juvenile diabetes and was giving himself insulin shots all the time. And he should have been such an incredible inspiration. Instead, he was the face of this uh, this uh, style of hockey, which in many did, did terrible damage to the, to the game. In 1976, when the Montreal Canadiens finally ousted the uh, Philadelphia Flyers, the Stanley Cup champions, the captain of the Canadiens, Serge Zavard, said, you know, the best thing about this is I think we finally put an end to all the crap that they stand for. Well, I applaud that. That's exactly what happened. So now you have uh, Bobby Clark was there for two Stanley Cups, Bobby Clark later becomes the general manager. Bobby Clark kind of becomes the, the son, Jay, or, or Mr. Snyder, the owner of the team, always wished that he had, had, I think. And he's still there running things. hes uh, I don't mean to suggest he's a bad person or anything, but he his time was bad for hockey, I think. And so that's why it was so ambivalent. So you include a, a 1992 piece on on Don Cherry. So can you, uh, for, for listeners who are not familiar with Don Cherry, can you give an introduction of him and, and what's your view on, on his role in hockey? Yeah, my view changed rather dramatically. He was becoming such a powerful figure then. He was on every single week on Saturday night. Hockey night in Canada on Saturday night is, is kind of the night in Canada all through the winter. it's uh, It's been around forever and it's it's really the church that many Canadians attend on the weekend. And so Don Cherry has this uh, segment called Coach's Corner that has been around since around 1982 or so. It grew in popularity to the point where uh, his popularity could not be compared to anyone else in the country. In fact, uh, recently, when they had a contest in Canada to name the greatest Canadian, uh, he was in the top ten. And when it boiled down to the arguments for the top 10 there was tremendous support nationally for him being named the greatest canadian can you imagine (laughs) so anyway all this guy does is he dresses a kind of a cross-dresser of types he dresses up in outlandish suits different one every week and he appears in this coach's corner and he just uh uh, goes at it he's he's kind of the fox news of of uh, hockey broadcasting because it's all bombast and it's all very right-wing and uh, it's an awful lot about the military. In fact, in recent years, it's become more about the military than it is about hockey. 
but his popularity has has continued on. And and for many years he was taken as a, just a bit of a buffoon or a comedy act in that, except that the influence started showing up in hockey. You know, finish your checks, uh, celebrate the fisticuffs. At the same time as he was working for the public broadcaster, which is CBC in Canada, it's commodity equivalent to the PBS in the United States, he's working for the public broadcaster, and they're in their shops and, and uh, over television, they're selling his... Uh, his Rock'em Sock'em videos, which are now up to number about 25 or so, they began as nothing other than uh, compilations of the fights in the National Hockey League. And as the the public turned uh, more and more against fighting fisticuffs, he he began running fewer fights and more heavy checks on that. But he's always celebrated kind of the violent side of, of hockey. And while he has done the odd good thing, one one being an argument for softer pads and also another being an argument for putting a stop sign on the backs of uh, kids' helmets and jerseys so that uh, kids coming at them from behind wouldn't drive them into the boards. He has, in in my opinion, been extremely damaging to the game in terms of the way the game is played and the way people follow him and the way coaches kind of emulate him. Uh, you get these coaches who uh, who think they're Don Cherry, and, and so that it's it's not been a good experience. The last several years... Uh, he has increasingly fallen out of step with the public mm-hmm. to the point where I think in this last year, even though the CBC still employs him at huge amounts of money and, in fact, gave him a contract extension not too long ago, the public seems to have turned against him because he simply has gone way over the top at this time in terms of uh, basically taking on uh, the arguments that people were making that brain injuries were causing serious and, in some cases, causing people to have well, to commit suicide would mm-hmm. be the, the, the strongest example. So he's somewhat fallen out of favor here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he'll be around a little longer. He's 77. It's amazing that he's going on. My piece in 1992 that you referred to is is fairly affectionate toward him, and I don't feel that anymore. I'm yeah. sorry. So already in your essays of the 1970s, you were lamenting the violence of hockey, uh, as you call it in one article, guerrilla hockey. And in recent years, the debate over hockey has has become even more urgent, as you were talking about with this evidence of of head injuries and the effect that it has on on players' health. Um, But still, and it's not just just Don Cherry, uh, there are hockey fans uh, who, in Canada, who argue strongly against removing removing the fighting, removing the hitting, or, or... uh, in some way curtailing the hitting in hockey. Why is this such a, a hotly contested issue in, in Canadian hockey? Basically, uh, those people believe that fighting is necessary as a safety valve and that you're going to have, uh, in a high-contact, fast-moving sport, you're going to have explosive moments and, and flashes of anger and that the fighting allows these people, uh, working as a safety valve, to get rid of some of that frustration without them using their sticks to club each other over the head or to cut it, their, their person or to attack them otherwise. So they think it's actually a safety thing. Those of us who believe otherwise argue that if, in fact, it is a safety valve, how come it's always the same two guys fighting? Mm-hmm. And how come, in fact, those two guys more and more increasingly had no contact whatsoever. They were simply sat over the boards and started a fight, in a so-called staged fight. Mm-hmm. What, we argue, is the purpose of that. And many, many people in, in hockey who used to believe that a good fight could change the momentum of the game have, have changed their opinions dramatically. I think the uh, two of the most outspoken people in that category would be, of all people, Bobby Clark, whom we just talked about, and Harry Sinden. Harry Sinden used to be, be the coach and master of the Big Bad Bruins back in the days of Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito when they were winning and, and when they were a tough team. So no one believes that anymore. So, so what are you stuck with? You're stuck with a situation where people, uh, a lot of people believe that fighting is necessary in the game, and a lot of people don't. They don't seem to be able to make up their mind about it. Those who argue that there is no role in fighting in the game are subject to an amazing amount of uh, ridicule in that. And and I've really tried to wrap my head around this an awful lot because it's very complicated. The closest I've been able to come to it is that I think that the uh, uh, there's a the word I've used a few times, even though it's not quite right, is is that it's homophobic, and that 
there's this this attitude in hockey that uh, anyone who shows any sign of weakness has to be attacked. It's like uh, in a chicken coop where a chick a chicken that is uh, sick or losing its feathers will be attacked and pecked to, to death by the others. That they do not wish to have any sign of weakness, and any sign of weakness is subject to to attack. And so that when you are in the position, as many of us are in the country, of arguing that fighting has to go in hockey, as it has gone in every other single sport, uh, they just turn around and, and, and attack because they, they perceive it as some kind of sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. We would argue that no, it's a sign of strength, it's a sign of maturing. If you can take uh, fighting out of football, which is a far more intense contact sport, surely you can take it out of out of uh, hockey and and no one is ever going to argue that you will forever take it out because yes hockey uh, sorry other sports have banned fighting baseball for example uh, they still have the odd fight what hockey has to do is ban fighting and what people fight kick them out and punish them accordingly right now there's no penalty whatsoever when i get in a fight you and i get sent to the uh, penalty box with what are called majors Mm -hmm. Uh, they pretend that these are major penalties in fact they're major rewards our teams go back playing five on five. There's no shortage of, of manpower because of what you and I did in stopping the game and having this fight. And then come the summer when our contracts are up and we're sitting down to renegotiate again, uh, Bruce and Roy will table their majors exactly the way other players will table their goals and assists. And we will argue that on the basis of how many majors we had, we should be subsequently rewarded in our contract. So where's the penalty? Mm-hmm. So a major factor in the, in the current debate about violence and player safety is the loss of of Sidney Crosby to uh, symptoms from concussions. And Crosby went out with a concussion in January of 2011. He missed the rest of last season. He's played only eight games this season before um, suffering from symptoms again. And there's speculation now as to whether he'll, he'll ever return. So there were other players whose careers ended early due to concussions but but why is is Sidney Crosby different why uh would his loss be uh more difficult for the game there's many reasons behind that uh, one is because he is the Wayne Gretzky of his his day so that for for the hockey to lose a player of that magnitude the best player in the game and the best uh, ambassador for the game as well is is simply tragic when he's 23 24 years of, of age but the, the real thing that has changed the uh, the whole groundwork is that science has stepped forward, and we now know a whole bunch of things that we didn't used to know. Uh, researchers at Boston University, for example, have been examining the brains of deceased athletes that have been left to the university and found out that there's this... Uh, the short form of CTE, this uh, contusion situation that has, leads to early dementia, and and uh, more studies in in both the United States and Canada are finding out that the concussion effect is cumulative, and it's different for everyone, but it can have such profound effects as depression, uh, dementia, suicide uh, thoughts, and and yes, we have had suicides in hockey and uh, uh, drug abuse, uh, all kinds of very awful things can can come out of this. So there's a new awareness, and when that new awareness gets applied to a face such as Sidney Crosby, then you have people saying, oh my God, we have a real problem, we've got to do something. It didn't apply, for example, when Eric Lindros mm-hmm. lost his career because of concussion. It didn't apply when Paul Correa lost his career because of concussion because we didn't know all of those things at that time. There's a new awareness, and I compare it to smoking. In 1962, the United States Surgeon General comes out and announces that smoking, in fact, leads to lung cancer and is bad for people. Prior to that, you had doctors, actual doctors, advertising cigarettes. Which ones were better for you? You had the future president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, advertising cigarettes. Cigarettes were considered to be a calming and good influence for people with bad nerves. Well, as the years went by, people finally realized just how bad uh, the, the dangers of smoking were because of the science, and then suddenly those people who were engaged in smoking just became public pariahs, it seemed. And, and so the whole society changed its attitude towards smoking. That's the same thing that's got to happen in terms of head injuries. It's no longer funny. It's no longer, oh, well, he just got his bell rung and he'll be all right. It's a real bad thing that we have to fix. Mm-hmm. So you include in the book a profile of Commissioner Gary Bettman, which you you published just last year. Uh, so, and the piece is it's a it's a balanced piece. 
uh, about Batman. In in your view, what have been the successes and the failures of Batman's tenure as NHL commissioner? Well, the successes uh, which a lot of Canadians will not grant him are, are there and undeniable. He's uh, he brought labor peace to it. He brought brought uh, cost certainty. Uh, through the last collective bargaining arrangement, and that uh, has allowed the Canadian teams to prosper. In fact, the healthiest franchises in hockey now are, are Canadian teams. And uh, I guess a decade ago, it would be that there was a fear that the Canadian teams would vanish completely and that the only Canadian team left would be the Toronto Maple Leafs. Well, not only are all those Canadian teams from that time now thriving, but we have a new one in Winnipeg. So that's been good. He was pivotal in getting that franchise to go to Winnipeg. Canadians have to recognize that. He did uh, have some success in selling footprints. You have uh, uh, incidents where some of those expansion teams have worked quite well in California. Dallas worked quite well for a while. Whether it will again, I don't know. And... uh, you know the uh, some of the others uh, hold hold good province. Uh, certainly, the switch from the Quebec City to Colorado was a phenomenal success, and then even led to a Stanley Cup in the first year. His uh, negatives have been uh, that uh, he's uh, been slow, I think, to uh, recognize the dangers that come from from uh, concussion. I think that he he himself personally cannot possibly believe that there is any role for fighting in hockey, and yet he has to follow the owner's belief that there is. They're just afraid of losing fans if they don't uh, still have fighting in some of those rinks. So I think that there's been that. And, and uh, he has grown the uh, product to the point where, in terms of sponsorship and attendance, it's quite phenomenal, and, and even television revenue, which which is now good, has, has been great. But in, in my opinion, where that's bad, and certainly no one in hockey would agree that this is bad, but where I think it's bad is that it has basically put the price of tickets out of reach for the ordinary person. I think hockey is just too stupidly expensive. Now, that's just my view, and it's not going to be, it's not going to carry any weight whatsoever, but I think it's outrageously expensive. So uh, it's, it's been good and bad, but he's certainly been a dominant head of the sport far more so than his predecessors were so you have to give him some credit of course you have to give him some blame because whenever you're the head of any sport you're going to get a lot of flack so let's turn to the the person who's on the cover of the book wayne gretzky and uh, you include in the book a, a piece you have a number of pieces on on gretzky uh, but you include in the book a piece from 1982 which you mentioned earlier which argues that gretzky had already by that time ruined hockey and he should be forced to leave the NHL. And as, as you said earlier, uh, this, this piece was tongue-in-cheek. But when I was reading it, the, the question came to mind. Do you ever find yourself hoping that hockey will have another Gretzky? Or are you, are you content with the idea that, that there will be only one great one in, in the history of the sport? I think there'll only be the one great one in terms of how he transcended the sport. In terms of of abilities, you can argue till the cows come home that uh, Bob Yor was as good a player or as influential a player, or that Gordie Howe or Jean Beliveau or Bobby Hull or Mario Lemieux or now Sidney Crosby, but none of them have that transcendent quality. Uh, They don't capture the imagination of the non-hockey world the way that Wayne Gretzky did. And so I've I've always said that he is he is the blip in the history of hockey. Mm-hmm. You have you have the history of hockey going along, and it's always got kind of an upward creep. It's not very dramatic, and it just goes up. It gets bigger and bigger as as history goes along. But then you have Gretzky arrive, and it and the blip causes it to soar into the stratosphere, and then you get expansion and everything, and uh, dreams uh, go go run amok. You have the f- cover of Sports Illustrated in in around 1990 saying that hockey has now replaced the basketball as the number two sport, and is it going to replace football and all this? Well, of course not. It never did. And it eventually came back to earth so that it looked like uh, hockey had a great collapse after Gretzky, when in fact, had there been no Gretzky, I think that upward climb would have just been nice and steady and maintained. He really is a blip. And... Uh, I don't think he'll ever be replaced again. 
So you close the book with an essay on Mark Vicenton. And uh, so can you tell us who he is and, and why you chose to finish the book with his story? It happened in Buffalo a year ago in the World Junior Championships. Mark Vicentin was the goaltender chosen to play for Canada. Canada expects to win gold medals in that. It's a really quite a ridiculous thing. It's, I think, impossible for anyone else in the world to comprehend the mania that Canadians have for this uh, silly little junior tournament. The whole world stops in Canada for it, it seems. <clears throat> he was chosen to be the goaltender in the gold medal game against the Russians. Canada went out to a 3 nothing lead. They had the game won. Entering the third period, it was all over. Canadians were in total celebration. The world was right. And then the world crashed. Uh, suddenly, uh, the Russians turned it on, and they scored five unanswered goals on Byzantine. And consequently, the Canadians lost the gold medal, 5-3. to three. It's considered the greatest choke in Canadian junior hockey history and, and almost disgraceful. Uh, he was in tears, of course, after it happened. He was getting the full blame, as goaltenders tend to do in a loss. And as people were talking about a choke and what a mistake they had in leaving him in net, actually the Russians had replaced their goaltender in the same game and then came back to win. So people thought that the coach, Dave Cameron, should have replaced him. The kid's 18 years old. He's totally, completely, and utterly crushed. He goes into the dressing room. The kids are crying. He's sitting there. He's crying, too. The PR guy, Andre Brandt, walks in and he says, the media's out there waiting, they've got deadlines. He says, is there anybody here who feels up to going out to speak to them? Mark Visentine stands up and says, I'll go. He walks out and he meets us, and I'm, I'm among them out there, and I could not believe when he showed up. You could see that he'd been crying, and he stood there and he, he took complete blame. He didn't have to. You cannot blame the goaltender in a hockey game the way that some people think you can the Russians were, were worthy of the win, but he said, it's my responsibility to keep the puck out. I let the team down. I take full responsibility. I will have to deal with this myself. And I thought, this is a very interesting young man. Mm -hmm. As his parents and grandparents were leaving, uh, they drove back over the Peace Bridge. And as they're going over, they stopped at the, uh, they were stopped by the, the uh, security guards, the customs guards. And of course, you have to hand over your your uh, passports. It's an unusual last name, Visentine. The guy looks at the name and he says, oh crap, he said, uh, you're a Visentine to, to his father. And, uh, and of course, they were all in the car there and, and the security guards going on about what an awful thing this was and how, how crushing it must be. They're feeling terrible. Uh, Mark comes home a little bit later in another car with his girlfriend. He drives back. And the only reason I know this is that I waited a few days and then I approached the team that he played for, the Niagara Ice Dogs, with my editor. It was my editor's idea. And they said, look, Mark has a story to tell. Would you, would he tell it? And they thought about it for a few days and then he decided, yes, he would tell the story. And the story is about that, about the parents driving back home and what they experienced at the, at the border and then Mark making that lonely, lonely, crushing drive back, thinking that his whole world has come to an end and there's this moment where he gets to his home in the small town of Watertown, and he's walking up the driveway. His world has come to an end. The world, the country hates him, of course. It'll never be the same. He'll never recover. He opens the door, and his old 15-year-old uh, dog, Labrador, Sheba, comes scraping across the floor, tail waggling and wiggling, just happy as anything to see her. And he just, I mean, he just loses it because this, this is the dog that he played shinny with in the driveway. This is the dog that he did everything with, and the dog, of course, still loves him. And he realizes then that, you know, life goes on, and and that it's just a game. After this crushing defeat that people thought he would never recover from, he ends up being the goaltender of the year in the junior hockey in Ontario. He's selected as the goaltender of the year in all of Canadian hockey. And he's going on, he's going to have a professional career at one point. And in fact, that experience made him a stronger and better person. So I'll ask you about uh, going through compiling this, this collection of your, of your hockey writing, which is uh, so close to four decades of material. So what was it like to, to choose the essays in the, in the book? Were you drawn immediately to this? I remember this essay, this one has to be in there. Or did you... Uh, did you read through all of your back material and find something you had forgotten about? How did you go about compiling this? Um, a, a bit of both. 
I uh, knew some that I would want in there for certain. Uh, some of the profiles in particular, Bobby Clark, for example, or Marcel Dion. And uh, then as I went through my old columns, I would come upon some. But I also had excellent help from an editor, Craig Payette, who's very much a hockey fan. And I was able to give him suggested columns, and he would pick through them and say, well, I think this one's important and this one uh, maybe not so. And it was Craig, for example, who said, you know, you have to put this piece in here about Wayne Gretzky being the worst thing that ever happened for hockey. <laughs> I said, I can't do that. I said, the title's about Wayne Gretzky and the uh, whole story in there about how he's a friend and, mm-hmm. and we've become, uh, we're working together. He said, no, no, people will get it. Uh, they'll see that it's done tongue-in-cheek, so it's in there. And you you obviously got it because that's what you said, it's tongue-in-cheek. All right. Well, Roy, I really enjoyed this book as a uh, as a former player. As I've said, there were there were plenty of instances which uh, uh, you know I, I, I identified with that resonated with me. And and even for someone who is not a, uh, a former hockey player or so much of a fan, I think this book would be a great introduction. You know, like a, like a good literary anthology. This would give a good uh, a great survey to the game over the last uh, last four decades. So thank you for coming on the program. Well, thank you, Bruce. You've obviously got a real feel for the game, and, and that comes through in every question you ask. So I appreciate that hugely. Well, thank you. I, I'll take that as a great compliment. You've been listening to an interview with Roy McGregor about his book, Wayne Gretzky's Ghost and Other Tales from a Lifetime in Hockey, published in 2011 by Random House Canada. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from military history to philosophy. Please friend New Books and Sports on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you can give us feedback and find daily links to quality, shorter sports writing. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. Enjoy your week.